Episode 2. The Vikings. Or how wave after wave of immigration made and continues to make Britain the rich, fascinating and occasionally suspicious country it is today. It must have been hard being a liberal in the 5th century. You try to talk in encouraging terms about all the positive aspects of multiculturalism, about the wonderful rainbow mix of ethnic traditions and customs, and then all the immigrants let you down by splitting everyone's head open with an axe, forcing you and your family to flee for your lives. Yes, well, you see, in their religion, murder and pillage is very much a matter of honour. So I think it would be rather culturally elitist of us to attempt some sort of universal moral judgment based on our own ethical... Oi! The bastard! He just nicked my ox. In the year 789, some strange visitors turned up off the coast of Dorset and killed the local reeve. His village was left with no one to do all the... well, all the, the reeving. The account of this first Viking raid appears in the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, the official record of events in late Anglo-Saxon England. Soon, readers of the Chronicle got fed up with reading the same depressing news year after year. Vikings raid Lindisfarne. Jarrow Monastery burned by Viking thugs. Iona monks murdered by Vikings. Stop this Viking misery, says the Chronicle. What was so terrifying about the Vikings was not just the suddenness with which they appeared, but also the savagery of their attacks. None of the usual European rules of engagement seemed to apply. King Edmund of East Anglia was tied to a tree and used for target practice by Viking archers. A Northumbrian king had his lungs ripped out of his chest, while another king was apparently hung from a tree by his testicles. At least, that was his excuse when they found him. Of course, our view of the Vikings is coloured by the fact that for centuries our only source material was the Anglo-Saxon accounts of their raids, and so we have tended to stereotype the Vikings by presuming that they were all brutal and thuggish. But you don't get a second chance to make a first impression. The earliest Viking raiders to leave Scandinavia tended to be the sons of farmers who had no land of their own. They were young, they were male, they'd had a few beers. Imagine hundreds of football hooligans going on a booze cruise, armed with swords and axes, and the wanton violence no longer seems so alien. Into this chaos, a young English prince called Alfred was born in Wantage, who is to become the greatest king in Anglo-Saxon history. A demoralised and frightened people did not have much hope that this 22-year-old king would fare better than the leaders of the other Saxon kingdoms. But at every turn, Alfred proved to be creative and determined as he led a fight back that brought hope to the whole of Europe. A grateful Pope even sent him a piece of the original cross on which Christ had been crucified. Footnote. There were quite a lot of pieces of wood from the original cross in circulation at the time. Enough to make a few hundred crosses anyway. King Alfred sought continental expertise on shipbuilding and constructed a fleet longer and faster than those of the Danes, with the result that he managed to destroy a Viking fleet of 120 ships in the English Channel. The Viking leader Guthrum signed a treaty saying that they would leave Wessex alone, but Alfred's weakness was that he trusted the Vikings not to break their word. The heathens struck at Christmas, with a massive army combining Guthrum's forces with the Vikings who had taken control of South Wales. Alfred was taken completely by surprise and was forced to flee and hide out in the Somerset marshes. Here in disguise, he took refuge in a peasant's hut 
where a housewife had told him to watch the cakes while she went to fetch water. So deep in thought was Alfred that he didn't notice the smoke coming from the stove, and when she returned she scolded him for burning the cakes. He then revealed his identity, and the woman begged for forgiveness, but Alfred was humble and merciful, saying that she had every right to be angry. There are those who doubt the authenticity of this story, i.e. all reputable historians, but the account appears in the Ladybird Book of English Kings and Queens, so it must be true. Either way, it is the incident for which Alfred is most famous. You defeat the Vikings, you found the navy, you establish a new legal system, creating the shires and boroughs, you invent the candle clock, you learn Latin at the age of 40, so you can translate classical works into the language of the common people, you set up the Anglo-Saxon Chronicle, you restore the churches and the monasteries, and then people say, Oh yeah, Alfred, <laughs> you're that bloke what burnt all them cakes. But Alfred is, of course, also the only English king to have earned the title The Great. He could have done a lot worse. His contemporary in France was Charles the Bald, who was followed by Charles the Simple, and his brother, Charles the Hard to pin down to one particular attribute. The following century came the final Scandinavian onslaught to hit Britain, unless you include Abba. It came from Norway, in the shape of the terrifying royal exile, Eric Bloodaxe. Bloodaxe was just one of the many Vikings whose names struck fear into the hearts of Christians. He had contemporaries such as Thorfinn Skullsplitter and Harold Wartooth. Obviously, these weren't these leaders' real surnames. They were nom de guerre they adopted in order to intimidate their enemies. It wouldn't have been much good leading your men into battle with a name like Eric Flowerpress. We cannot fail in our brutal slaughter of the Christians for we are led by Olaf Tidyhouse. Now, more than ever, the country needed a king who would be ready. Unfortunate, then, that the crown now came to Ethelred the Unready. Typical. <laughs> Just when everyone else is ready to leave, Ethelred starts packing. In fact, the only thing we remember about Ethelred isn't even what was meant. His nickname was an elaborate pun on his own Christian name, Rede meant counsel, Ethelred meant well counselled, so the joke is, good counsel the no counsel. Well, you, you sort of had to be there. Of all the terrible leaders that this country has had to endure, Ethelred was right up there with the worst of them, somewhere between King John and Margaret Thatcher. Ethelred had the ultimate in pushy mothers. When his half-brother, King Edgar, came round to her house, she had him stabbed to death so that her boy Ethelred could be king in his place. But Ethelred was not up to the task. When Vikings landed, demanding money, Ethelred gave it to them. Unsurprisingly, they came back and asked for more, and a frightened Ethelred paid them again. What his mother had clearly not told him is that you have to stand up to these bullies eventually. Now tell me, Ethelred, this bully, Olaf, you said his name was. I bet he's not got many friends, has he? Oh, yes, he's got loads of friends, because he's got all that money I gave him. Well, maybe just try and avoid him, dear. Oh, you don't understand. He's got thousands of mad, axe-wielding warriors who are going to cut each of my ribs away from my spine and then stretch my lungs out in the Viking sacrifice known as the Blood Eagle. Oh, well, dear, often the fear of pain is worse than the pain itself. 
The money Ethelred paid out was called the Danegeld, a word that has entered the English language as a symbol of the coward's way out, best summed up in Rudyard Kipling's rather plonky poem. But we've proved it again and again, that if once you have paid him the Danegeld, you never get rid of the Dane. Finally, Ethelred did stand up to the bullies, but in the most cowardly way possible. Instead of meeting the soldiers in battle, he hatched a plan that every Scandinavian in the country be murdered on the same day. There was a great difference between the young Viking soldiers who had just sailed from Norway and the settled, anglicised Danes who had been in the country for several generations. But Ethelred was panic-stricken and convinced that he was about to be assassinated. The St. Brice's Day Massacre in 1002 was an orgy of coordinated, cold-blooded racial murder, England's own Rwandan genocide. Far from making Ethelred more secure, the massacres provoked fury in Scandinavia. The King of Denmark's sister was one of the victims, and now he sailed to England and for four years exacted a bloody and protracted revenge. Blinded or limbless victims of the Vikings' fury stumbled around southern England, a gruesome reminder of Ethelred's disastrous tactics. Even the Archbishop of Canterbury was tied up and pelted to death with cow skulls and animal bones. Frankly, it had all got very unpleasant. The period from the Roman departure to the Norman conquest saw the most dramatic and fundamental change in the racial makeup of England's population, and it would never be so sudden or violent again. Perhaps it was during that unhappy period that our fear of new arrivals became hardwired into our collective psyche. Perhaps now, when we see a family of asylum seekers moving into a hostel in the town centre, there is a little bit of us still worried that they might tie us to a tree and pelt us to death with animal skulls, which apparently they do quite regularly, if you read some of the tabloids. This theory might hold true, but for one significant historical fact. Though the racial DNA of the British was more or less created during those tumultuous centuries, it has changed far more since then. So if you have just arrived in the United Kingdom from Somalia with nothing but the scars of war and an enormous sense of trepidation about what your new home will be like, there is something you should know about all the confident, busy people you see all around you. They are all immigrants too. Everyone in Britain is of foreign stock, some, like the Saxons or Vikings, arriving many generations ago, jumping out of longboats, waving swords above their head, which certainly saves all that red tape you had to go through at Sangat Detention Centre. But a far greater number arrived in the past few generations, refugees from other wars or revolutions, or simply economic migrants, looking for a better wage and somewhere where you could get a pickled egg and a warm pint to wash it down with. There isn't a single person left in Britain who is a result of marrying and remarrying within the same tiny gene pool of those original Neolithic Britons, though there's a village in Norfolk where I have my suspicions. In the millennium since the Vikings, our society has been continually enriched by thousands upon thousands of Dutch weavers, German bakers, Russian Jews, West Indians, Ugandan Asians, Bengali waiters and premiership goalkeepers, all of them regarded with a certain amount of suspicion and disdain by the people who had got here a generation or two before them. I see some Huguenots have moved in at number 36. Well, there goes the neighbourhood. Once you get one lot move in, another family take over the house next door. 
Before you know it, the whole street is full of them, smelling of garlic and moaning about the revocation of the Edict of Nantes. In fact, the greatest ever wave of immigrants to these shores was not the Saxons in the 5th century, nor the Vikings in the 9th century, nor the French in the 17th. It was Eastern Europeans in the past five years. In terms of pure numbers, more Polish and other Eastern Europeans arrived in Britain in the years after EU expansion than any other racial group in history. The British economy has boomed as a result, even if it has meant us having to surrender certain charming British traditions, such as waiting three hours for the plumbers to turn up so they could mix up the sewage outlet pipe with the taps on the B-Day. In another age, such a huge foreign influx would have caused riots and house burning and war. But we have come a very long way since the days of Eric Bloodaxe.